Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, November 10th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com or via social media on Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Felicia Zamora, with whom I'll be discussing her poem, Love Bold, and my poem, Still. Before we do that, however, I am going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Valley during the week of November 11th. On Monday, November 11th, from 6 to 7.45 p.m., Christy White and the Arizona State Poetry Society will be hosting their monthly Mustang Poets Open Reading and Discussion at the Mustang Library at 10101 North 90th Street in Scottsdale. From 6.30 to 8.30, Patty will be hosting her monthly Poetry Roundtable Workshop at Changing Hands Bookstore at 6428 South McClintock Drive in Tempe. From 8.30 p.m., Phoenix Firebird Events will be hosting its Firebird Rebirth Open Mic at Seamus McCaffrey's Irish Pub and Restaurant at 18 West Monroe Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 8 p.m. On Tuesday, November 12th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop in Room 101 of the Chandler Community Center at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 6.30 to 8 p.m., Cynthia schwartzberg Etlo will be hosting the second of her Vision and Revision workshop at Changing Hands Bookstore, which is at 6428 South McClintock Drive in Tempe. From 7 to 9 p.m., Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting its monthly Creative Collaborative Jam Writing Through the Darkness workshop with Rosemary Dombrowski. This will take place at the Fair Trade Cafe, which is at 1020 North 1st Avenue in Phoenix. From 8 to 11 p.m., King Kong will be hosting his underground experience at La Flor de Calabaza at 705 North 1st Street, Suite 110 in Phoenix. On Wednesday, November 13th, from 6 to 8 p.m., the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting the third of its three There's a Chameleon in My Prose Poem, Poetry and the Art of Disguise with Justin Petropoulos at the Piper Writer's House at 450 East Tyler Mall in Tempe. On Thursday, November 14th from 6 to 9 p.m., Fatso's Pizza will be hosting its weekly open mic night at 3131 East Thunderbird Road in Phoenix. From 7 to 9 p.m., Mesa Arts Center will be hosting its monthly Wordplay Cafe at the Nile at 105 West Main Street in Mesa. If you get there by 6.15, you can join their writing and performance workshop. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quentin Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Jobot Coffee and Bar at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. From 9.45 p.m., Atlas St. Cloud will be hosting his weekly poetry writing workshop at the Welcome Diner at 929 East Pierce Street in Phoenix. 
on Friday, November 15th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Friday Poetry featuring Stephen DeFreitz will be taking place at Changing Hands Bookstore at 6428 South McClintock Drive in Tempe. From 7 to 10 p.m., Lost in the Letters will be hosting its first of two nights of its The Letters Festival readings at Palabras Bilingual Store at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. On Saturday, November 16th, from 9.30 a.m. to 12 p.m., the East Valley Poets will be hosting its monthly short program and open reading at the Tempe Pile Center at 655 East Southern Avenue in Tempe. From 4 to 5 p.m., Lost in Letters will be hosting two simultaneous workshops. One is the Environment as Protagonist Workshop with Soretta Morgan, and the other one is Surrealism Writing the Uncanny Union Workshop with Sarah Rose Setter. Both of them will be taking place at Palabras Bilingual Bookstore at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. From 4 to 6 p.m., Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting its ninth season motion poems, featuring 16 short films based on poems at the Film Bar Phoenix at 815 North 2nd Street. From 7 to 10 p.m., Lost in the Letters will be hosting its second of two The Letters Festival readings at Palabras Bilingual Bookstore at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. From 7 to 10 p.m., Suzanne Steinberg will be hosting her bi-weekly Share Your Art, Share Your Heart open mic at the Garage Art Gallery, which is behind the carport at 1536 West Roma Avenue in Phoenix. If you have any questions about the event, you can email Suzanne at steinberg.suzanne at gmail.com. Again, that's steinberg.suzanne at gmail.com. Steinberg is spelled S-T-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. Suzanne is S-U-Z-A-N-N-E. On Sunday, November 17th, from 7 to 9 p.m., Equality Arizona will be hosting its Living Transistory, celebration of trans and non-binary poetry. Sean Avery, a past poet and muses poet guest, will be one of the performers. This will take place at the Coronado at 2201 North 7th Street in Phoenix. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Felicia Zamora. Hi, Felicia. Thank you for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi, Imogen. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. It's a real pleasure. So you brought with you today your poem, Love Bold. Mm -hmm. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, let's see. I identify as a poet, as an educator, as a woman of color, as an activist for social change, Mm -hmm as um, a program manager in my job, mm-hmm. as a partner, as a dog mom. Uh, <laughs> how many? How many? As a two. Oh, two. wow. Yeah, two, two German Shepherd mixes oh, nice. that we are, we are happy to have as, as rescues. Oh, nice. Yeah, we're all about the rescue dogs. Uh-huh. And so I'm relatively new to Arizona, mm-hmm. so, so this is nice chatting with you. Great. I've been here since I started working in Arizona in October 2017. Okay, okay. And was in Colorado 
well, actually August 2017, and then formally moved in October. So I was going between states for a few months. Wow. And working. Yeah, which <laughs> that was, was really interesting. Which was hilarious. <laughs> um, and was in Colorado for 12 years prior to that. Okay. And at this point, still sort of think of Colorado as my home, oddly. Mm. But you're not from there. No, I'm not from there. Okay. I, I'm actually from Iowa. I was, I was okay. born in Iowa. Okay. And found that Colorado was a place that both my partner and I loved. We loved being there. Mm-hmm. But was seeing that we needed to, for me, shift in career. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been in higher education for 17 years. Mm-hmm. So everything from multicultural recruitment to academic advising to what was called the Beverage Business Institute, giving business education <laughs> to distributorships and breweries across the country. Oh, that sounds very Coloradian. Yeah, it was. It totally was. <laughs> Most people would have thought it was like a dream job, but as a poet, if the writing life and the education life aren't together, it still wasn't quite right. right. You know, it wasn't right. quite what I wanted. So decided to apply to a job at the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing. Mm. Um, yeah. Yep. And so that's what brought me here. Nice. And it's been great. It's been really interesting to learn about Phoenix and its many oddities. And <laughs> <laughs> I keep I keep remembering, you know, the first time someone told me that this is the fifth largest city in the country and I Right. And I kept thinking, no, no, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it could be. But then it's it's so sprawling. You know, it is. It sprawls out, not up. Right, right, yeah. Wait, are, are they talking about Phoenix proper? I forget. Because no, I they actually it. talk about Phoenix proper because I looked wow. it up and Mesa and Tempe and Scottsdale, they're ranked in there as well. Oh, okay. But not, just not as high as Phoenix proper, right, which, is, right. which is fifth. Yeah, I read that as well, but then I kind of forgot it, put it in the back of my mind. Uh, yeah, right? But, I, but there are times when I, for some reason, that's important for me to know. It's important for me, I think, both as a, as a human being, but also as sort of an artist to remember that I am in a large metropolitan area, and with that comes societal benefits, but also societal issues, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. I think resa- resounding societal issues that, that start, you know, like the ripple effect that are in one place and kind of echo out and we all feel that collectively at times yeah so grew up in the midwest was in colorado for a very long time at colorado state university Mm -hmm. actually still teach creative writing online for them Oh, nice. Um, at, while working at the Piper Center. My time here in Phoenix thus far has been really great. I've been very surprised of what a thriving art scene is here. I just Isn't that didn't, amazing? I just didn't know. You know, yeah. I used to visit here often. My sister lived here for over 16 years. Oh, wow. Okay. And then my brother lived here for four years. We, we Apparently, we just did these round robins where we all took <laughs> turns living here and so, not necessarily at the same time. So there's only room enough for one of these. Apparently. <laughs> yes, there, there's only room for one Zamora at a time. But now my brother and sister both live in Colorado. Oh, that's so yes, weird. Where we were living. Um, <laughs> yes. So we had time together all in Colorado as well. I think it was about three or four years where we were all there together. Okay. And it was lovely. Yeah. And I, and I miss yeah. them. I miss them every day. Right. Yeah, because right. my nieces and ne- my niece and nephews are, are there. And um, my partner's side of the family is there as well. Right. One of the things that I was wondering if you wanted to talk about is that I remember 
when I met you, it was at a reading, and in your introduction, Rosemary Dombrowski has said that you were a poet laureate for. Oh yes, yeah. Was it for Colorado or? Yeah, it was in. It was Fort Collins, Colorado, has okay. a poet laureate program that runs through Wolverine Farm Letterpress and Public House, okay. which is. For anybody in Colorado who may listen to this, yay! I love Wolverine Farm. Um, <laughs> we do have some audience. I, I would, I would, I would assume yeah, so. Yeah. And and Wolverine Farm is this just this wonderful organization that is is out to build a better community through the arts. Mm-hmm. And they created ooh, a few years back the the poet laureate program, and I was recommended, and then I was selected, and then shortly after selection, I found out that I was the job at the Piper Center in Arizona. Oh, really? So I did half the time. It was for 2017. And so half the time I was in Colorado and the other half, they let me finish out the year at a distance. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I, I did not get to do nearly all the activities that I wanted, but it was so generous of them to, and thoughtful of them for, to allow me to be there. For yeah. Them, you know, yeah. Be the, the laureate for the whole year. Yeah. Um, because those poet laureate programs, especially on a really local level, are necessary. Mm-hmm. It garners attention and also thought processes upon poetry. And mm-hmm. if we're all thinking in poetry, if we're all contemplating each other in our poesis as well as uh, artist capabilities, I think that we we attend to each other better as a community. Yeah, yeah, and also it helps to just bring attention to the community, to gather them in some ways uh, as well. And how did you get into poetry? So for a long time, I think I really pushed up against my being an artist, and it Mm -hmm. was largely because I came from a small town, and my brother and sister and I were the almost the first three diverse kids in that town. Mm. We are Latinx and my mother is white and my grandparents were white. And so we lived in this town mm-hmm. where we had people who were unbelievably generous to us. We also had a lot of growing pains of trying to figure out identity. Right. And on top of that, we were from a very low socioeconomic class, okay. which, mm. you know, it's all relative yeah. to location, to, to country, right, right. You know, to region, all of that. Yeah. Um, but my mom worked in a factory for over 13 years. And mm-hmm. we were very cognizant at the time of finances and mm-hmm. very cognizant of me starting to work much earlier than legally we were supposed to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To, to assist in paying bills. Yeah. And so for me, I had always had a love of writing. And mm-hmm. my mother, she wrote children's books. Oh, wow. But none of them were ever published formally. Right. But she would write these wonderful stories like Glasses for Tommy Tiger or <laughs> Betty Butterfly's Strange Mirror oh or Perky the Popsicle. Right, right. And she would write these stories, and at times she would also draw them as well. She would draw wow. the animation for them or the um, the pictures for them. And my sister and brother and I would, would take these manuscripts and we would the teachers would read them in school to wow. our class. And so... For me, having that sort of role model of creativity in the written word, mm-hmm. like at a very young age, was really important. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, you know, the realities of how can I support me? How can I support a family someday? How can I support myself financially? Felt like it outweighed my love of art. I actually actually stopped taking art in high school because I felt like I needed to have a path that was more practical, even though I loved art and I loved writing. Mm -hmm, It it mm -hmm. was kind of the core of who I was, but I didn't know who I was at that age. Right. right. And a lot of times we 
you don't. Um, yeah, no. And it's not that I didn't have anybody fostering me, trying to support me in that. It's that I was also an individual who I could keep things to myself at times. Right. Like if I loved writing, but I didn't know what I was going to do with it Mm -hmm. on a level of being a poor kid who needed a job. Right. I just stopped pursuing it. And so Mm -hmm. I got into college. I studied first pre-med. And that was mm-hmm. an epic, epic failure. <laughs> it was an epic failure because I loved calculus and I loved math. And for some reason, chemistry was like a foreign language to me. Okay. And it was the first like big, big failure of my existence where mm-hmm. I was failing everything I did in chemistry. I, I, oh, wow. I, I apparently didn't know what a beaker and a graduated cylinder were. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't know how I met it through high school. So, sorry, sorry, old high school teachers. Um, <laughs> in, in chemistry, I, I believe I got an A. I got an A in like everything except for driver's ed. <laughs> My GPA was demolished because I had one B plus in driver's ed. Yeah, yeah. It's the only reason I didn't get a 4.0. Wow. It's really hilarious. Wow. Yeah. Driver's Ed is part of high school. It was back then. Oh, back then. Very small schools. Yeah, it totally was. And so I bring that up because for me, it was was good. It was good for me to be high achieving and yet also being brought back down to reality Mm. of that. Grades are important, yes, but they're not everything. Yeah. Yeah. and so when I hit college, I thought I needed to, to do something, be something spectacular. And spectacular was decided upon by what society thought spectacular was. Yeah. Not often, what I not, yes, is, right? Not what I thought spectacular right, right, was. Right. Because now I think poets are spectacular. <laughs> we are. We are. We are. I do. I mean, not that just we are, but I think that the way that the poet mind thinks and the way that the poet mind is trying to take the veil and push it away and say, see, just see, this is who we are. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is the good, this is the horrid, this is the beautiful, this is right. the, the terrible, yeah. all together at one point in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that being young. And so what I found myself doing is when I was epically failing at being pre-medicine, I switched to communication studies mm-hmm. and found that I was very good at it. It was very easy for me. Communication has always been something that was an interest to me. Mm-hmm. But I was dancing around English. I didn't want to be an English major because mm. I, I really didn't want to study old dead white men. Um, <laughs> I, I really didn't care anymore. You know, in, right, in high right, school, right. that's all we studied, right? Yeah, it's hard to escape that canon if you go into English yeah. lit, right? Yeah. Well, you say that canon. I mean, the canon was old dead white men. I mean, <laughs> you, yeah, you get some, you get some Dickens in there and that kind of thing, and yeah. Mary Shelley. But the reality is, is that that is the canon. The canon was dead old white men. And for me, I wanted to study, and I did. I actually, I I took a back tour and I did a minor in English, which allowed me to take poetry workshops, Native American literature, African American literature, Chicano literature, women's literature. I was able to take only what I wanted to because it was a minor and they didn't care about minors, right? Like minors get to do whatever they want. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So for me, it was very fulfilling, I also circumvented that, and I I did an English lit degree, but it was not at a traditional humanities school, mm. so I got to totally skirt the canon, not necessarily because I wanted to. It just it wasn't That's their great. programming That's because awesome. that wasn't their concentration. So I read a lot of diaspora literature yeah. and also developing country literature, mm-hmm. and I'm very forever thankful. 
Right? Yeah. At the same time, I'm just like, when some people make classical references, I'm like, hang on a second, <laughs> Wikipedia. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and honestly, those classical references to me, I I have no apologies of not knowing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you want to you wanna talk with me about an invisible man or mm-hmm. you want to talk with me about things, books that really, really impacted me. And this is where what led me to poetry is that the first two books in poetry that hit me that this is a genre, this is an art form that I could be in, was I read Joy Harjo's She Had Some Horses. Mm-hmm. And here was this indigenous woman who was just exploding on the page, and the language and the experience was one that was nothing I had read before. Mm-hmm. And then Philip Levine's What Work Is was about factory workers in Detroit, and my mom had worked in this factory and like not that fa- not Detroit factories, but had worked in a plastics plant for for years and years. Mm-hmm. And I felt like not only as a poor kid from a factory working family and as a woman of color, I can have a voice in poetry. Right. It was mind blowing for me. Yeah. I mean, no one had given me permission ever to have a voice inside those identities. Yes, yes, exactly. This is something that I'm I'm coming across as well and since starting the podcast is people from all kinds of backgrounds will write poetry. Mm-hmm. The, they don't necessarily become poets, well, partly just because there's not really money to, mm-hmm. to be had. Partly, again, going back to the canon thing, it's because the idea is poets come from fairly well-to-do families and this is a leisure activity that mm-hmm. they did that... They didn't really have to worry about anything else. I mean, that goes for publishing, period. Yeah. Well, it goes for publishing, period, because who are the publishers? Yeah, exactly. I mean, mean, if if we really, we turn the eye inward and we really look at our uh, creative writing as a, you know, as an art form, who's making the decisions? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it it tends to be this dominant narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very hard to break into it or, or just shatter the idea of, who is a poet, mm-hmm. who is supposed to be a poet. And a lot of the formal recognition of poets still surrounds that idea. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, still sort of cradle that, that idea. Well, and who gets to decide who becomes a poet that is worthy of attention mm-hmm. is also mm-hmm. quite a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. I don't spend too much time thinking about that because for me, poetry is just necessary. Like, I have to write because now it's who I am. Once I stopped pretending that I was an artist and stopped pretending that I wasn't a poet. You know, the the gates became open that I had moved from Iowa to take a job in Colorado Mm -hmm. and started working at an institution that had an MFA program in poetry. And I don't believe that that was coincidence. I believe it was the serendipitous affair of Mm -hmm. fate stepping in or the universe or what, whatever random thing you want to call it. (laughs) I'm, I actually got into a, Todd, if you ever listened to this, Todd Mitchell <laughs> was, an, was an author who was just here and is a great friend of mine. And we just got into this this debate as to whether or not I'm atheist, which I believe that I am. But I, I have these inclinations toward this. I believe in randomness. I mm-hmm. believe that the random things are sometimes so random that they look like patterns. Yeah. And that the universe, when we throw things out to it, will sometimes give us what we need, but not in the time we wanted it or the way we wanted it, right? In order to let us learn. 
Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, we're only a very small part of it, right? Which, right. You know, which is why it was so hard to choose your poems. Because one of your poems, which I didn't end up choosing to read about, is about this sort of our part in the universe. Yeah. Right. And our very tiny part in yeah. the universe. Very tiny part in the universe, as well as the more I learn that I am not special. Mm-hmm. The more I learn that statistically, how could humans have not come to pass in evolution? I mean, the way that nature just gorges itself and and creates and creates and creates, like all of these wonderful anomalies, like the odds of us happening were slim, but how could we not have happened Mm -hmm. when this sort of magic is constantly happening, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when it does happen, the less special I feel, the more special I feel. It's both, isn't it? It's both, yeah. Yeah. And, And feeling tethered. to myself as a natural being in a natural world Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and understanding that I am made of the same material that the first comets that dusted the heavens or the universe, those comets, I'm made of part of that. I have particles of that inside of me. That connectivity is really really quite important for me. It really is amazing just to think from a human existence point of view of how many of our ancestors had to basically get weeded out of our own family tree for us to get here absolutely what tenacity our ancestors must have had to have us absolutely and i don't know if i can live up to that. well not just not just tenacity because that's made that's also making it sound as if like that that it was pure choice which I, honestly i think that due to randomness in the universe that a lot of it really is random that and luck and, and luck. luck i mean that whatever luck is right yeah, you know yeah. this idea of luck yeah that the fact that we are here makes us special but the fact that we are here and we are part of a species that constantly gorges just like nature does for both good and bad mm-hmm. That makes us special and it also doesn't make us special. Like, yeah. and, and, and the not making us special is the thing that I need in order to connect me deeper to humanity, to other people, is, yeah. is to remember that my consciousness is attached to your consciousness. Mm-hmm. My energy is the same type of energy that we all hold. Yeah. And, and, and you may have seen this in, in Love Bold, the poem, but if anybody reads my work, I am viscerally obsessed with the body. And it is because when I turn my eyes inward and I see the elemental parts of us, the muscle and the cells and the marrow and all of the, what makes the hemoglobin, like all those things are the same that's inside of you. Yeah. And it, it makes it impossible for me to not be implicated in other people's existence when Mm -hmm. inside we are so similar. Yeah. Yeah. There definitely is that love that's come out with that. I also feel like in the conversation that we're, we've been having just now, that love kind of talks about the self-determination aspect mm. of it. It's probably best if you read it and then we keep talking about it because it will make a lot more sense oh, sure, to the rest sure. of Yeah, lessons. absolutely. <laughs> love bold. When you first learned other, you a target of slurs and fingers of small fists in shove. Other, always, always lives internal. Other, bunks in between each disc in your vertebral column. Each gland you salivate from. Each constriction of pupil in search of understanding. Other, 
finds home in tendrils of brain, safe behind skull, think walls, think what walls keep, what walls inhibit, how you know prisoner, and thus out, out, brave other, into a world that throws stones, a world that beats and batters, how you, other, love bold, love bold. Thank you. So lovely. This piece was originally published in Foundry Journal, so if anybody would like to look it up, you can, you can see what it looks like. Because form, of course, the one thing you can't see is form on the page when mm -hmm. people read, and that yeah. I'm obsessed with the way that form looks like, mm -hmm. um, you know, that landscape, pages mm -hmm. landscape. So this will be coming out in the larger manuscript from Red Hen Press in 2020 mm -hmm. uh, called Body of Render. Mm -hmm. And this book is unbelievably important to me for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. I started this book on November 1, 2016. Mm -hmm. So the month of the last presidential election. Mm -hmm. This book will be coming out in 2020 during the next presidential election. And some of the things that this book is a consideration on intimate levels, but intimate levels of societal keeping, mm -hmm. of societal structures, of words that break. Mm. You know, if a word breaks, how do we mend it? Yeah. And what are those words? And so it's an important manuscript for me because I have never written such politically charged as well as emotionally charged poetry before. Mm. I used to be a, a poet and an artist who would wonder if my emotion was hijacking the piece. And so I'd think about ways in the process of creating of how to be mindful of too much emotion. Mm. And they say that cleverness is, is sort of the death of the art. <laughs> you know, the minute we insert ourselves, the thing is going to die because our intentionality is, is, is going to kill it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I pushed that away. I pushed that cleverness, this idea of what poetry is. I pushed it away in this manuscript. And yeah. it'll be my fourth book coming out. Okay. So proud it found a home at Red Hen. I think it's absolutely the right press of where it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Kate Gale had talked to me about it. And knowing that it was chosen from Marilyn Nelson, who is a poet that I absolutely adore and admire. And I, I teach her poetry. And for her to have chosen this manuscript was really, really important. Um, that's where Love Bold comes from, just yeah. in sequence. You said you started this manuscript a few days before Election Day. Yes. But when did you write this particular one? This, this poem came after the election. Okay. Um, and I, I'm trying to think of when. So basically, November 2016, I wrote a poem every day for 30 days. And it is the first 30 poems of the book. Okay. And it actually follows the voice of the poems as they go through what has happened both on a personal level and on a national level. Right, right. Was it, that on purpose, the poem a day, or did it just come out? So what had happened is I had just signed up to do the Tupelo 30 for 30. You write a poem every day for Tupelo, and then they post like the version online. Mm -hmm. And so some of these first drafts actually came from that project. And so mm -hmm. it was something that I had signed up for, not realizing the impact and the necessity of it when it happened. And mm -hmm. so having 
a poem every day during that month was so important for me and it was so important for the art that was coming out at the time. Yeah. And this manuscript was completed in less than nine months Wow. from start to finish. Wow. It was feverish to write and the necessity for me on its contemplations of our systems that are broken, <laughs> you know, especially as women of color or yeah. as individuals who are from underrepresented populations whose voice is already we are already trying to burrow out of out of a planet that we don't have voice anyway. Yeah. And under these, you know, societal constraints of oppression in many ways. Yeah. And also I feel like, as you were talking about before, who allows what to be published? Exactly. And also then even if minority voices or minority female voices or female voices are allowed to come through. Yeah. There are certain voices. Exactly. Like, I always find that a lot of Asian American poetry tends to be about immigration. Right. And it almost and feels like... Yeah, it, it almost feels like they have to be about that. Right. Which, in an indirect way, reinforces the stereotype that Asian Americans cannot be Americans. Mm, that's interesting. I always find that that is what's allowed to be published. I almost feel like if it's not that, people don't look at it as... Well, I think I think most underrepresented populations, whether it be women of color, whether it be people of color, whether it be LGBTQI individuals, whether it be individuals who identify as having a disability, all of us question what being American is mm-hmm. because we don't feel that the voices that are out are necessarily always representative of us. And when we try to have our voices come through, it is met with such resistance and such systemic oppression in the whiteness of the country Mm -hmm. and the able-bodiedness of the country Mm -hmm. and in the heterosexual identity of the country Mm -hmm. that we are constantly battling both an internalized oppression but also a systematic oppression that is heavy, is extremely heavy. Mm-hmm. And it, in my opinion, the only way that we can push through this is to understand that we are not alone mm-hmm. and understand that our voices collectively are so much stronger mm-hmm. and to encourage voice from each of us. Yeah, yeah. And also to, to realize, first of all, national border is a concept. Mm. Right. And that we should look across borders for our community right. in, in many ways. <laughs> Somewhat out of necessity, but also just to say these are the experiences that all of us have. Yes. Whether or not we are part of a numerical minority. Right. Because ironically, minorities here, numerical minorities, could, could actually be part of a majority when you're talking about world population. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So again, it's it's very artificial this this oh, yeah. environment oh, yes. that's within the US. And, and and being so close to the Mexico border and knowing that these ideas of borders are fictitious at best, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we know that all sorts of you know language is is a concept that was created to keep people at bay. There's a power structure in language. There's mm-hmm. a power structure in mapping. There's a power yeah. structure in space, period. Mm-hmm. And writing versus speaking. Yes. Language that are recorded. Oh, yeah. The value of the written word yeah. versus the oratory, which yeah. we are 
beings that were brought up in the oratory. I mean, mm-hmm. it is where we began as storytellers, as yeah. our, our basic humanity in creating language. Mm-hmm. And yet our eyes turn so inward. We're, we need to be looking to all of our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that, you know, in, internally in this country, <laughs> being so close to the Mexico border for me has been a journey that I'm still on. Mm-hmm. Being... Mexican-American and what that means Mm -hmm. and knowing that I have individuals and culture that are losing their lives Mm -hmm. over this fictitious border, Mm -hmm. that people are dying because they are looking for a place to find refuge and a place where their lives are not in danger anymore And and the way that this country looks at containment in all its holiness is more than I can speak about sometimes. And it's more out of a, again, a mental fear than anything else Mm. while we're not actually doing what is necessary to fight the real dangers, climate change, for instance. (laughs) We don't fight that. The climate doesn't really care what color you are. I think you're correct. It's about what will I take away from that dominant narrative if Mm -hmm. I am allowed to have a voice. Yeah. And I've actually been writing this new manuscript that I'm working on has been asking those same exact questions mm-hmm. of where did it get to the point where I'm taking away from you? Like, can the dominant narrative and its white fragility, can it not be without any of its power, without any of its previous haves? Mm-hmm. And I think this election, this past election and this upcoming election will be what happens when the dominant narrative continues to shake. Yeah, and I feel like people need to realize that those forces that are actually taking away their jobs, the jobs that they want, are actually white. Mm-hmm. Most of the CEOs are white male. They made the decision over dozens of years to take manufacturing jobs elsewhere. They made the decision of going to places that they know have human rights problems. Was that really not going to have an effect on this country? Of course not. But who gets the brunt of the blame is crazy. It's like, we don't make these decisions. Minority people do not make these decisions. So much is about a power struggle. And except for that power struggle is really only happening, in my opinion, it is the dominant narrative that's fighting for its own power. And we have yet to to fully take as underrepresented populations that voice. And we're working there. There are people who are working really hard, that we're pioneering Mm -hmm. it. But there's not equity in this country. There's no equity here. Not even within the white community. There's the socioeconomic divide as well. Right. I mean, yes, and we're to, and when we put class on top of all of this yeah. as yeah. well, and it makes that. things extremely complex. Yeah, and gender, of course. So. Mm-hmm. And gender, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, lots of intersectionality there, and ironically, the people that they want these poor whites to fight is other people of other colors, people of other ethnicities. Whereas, again, we don't tend to be running those companies. White men are, and they're taking, they're shaving away, cutting away at this point, at the middle class, Mm. making that gap between the uber top class and the lower classes even bigger. All of these things, that they're they're destabilizing the country, but they want us to fight. (laughs) Why should we buy into that? It doesn't make any sense for any of us. We always have to look at, Who's ultimately benefiting from it? 
right? This is a system and a structure that wasn't built by us nor for us. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality still. Mm -hmm. And my whole thought process, though, is that for underrepresented populations who we are born fighting, right? Mm -hmm. And it takes a toll. And my thought process is whatever people can handle on an individual level, whatever, wherever you feel safe, whatever you feel you can do. But we cannot judge each other for taking a minute for ourselves and and keeping ourselves safe because this is a battle that's going to go on for a long, long time. Yeah. Hopefully not, but at the same time, I mean, look at our history. I do think now, though, the empowerment of each other to voice our experiences, especially through art, you know, especially through poetry, the experience that we can give on a page that we can allow another reader to step into, whether that's it's not necessarily about changing someone's mind mm-hmm. when it comes to activism, like poetry as social change, It's more about even showing individuals that there's echoes of similarity where, again, we are having a shared experience here, whether Mm -hmm. it be through energy, whether it be through consciousness, but yet that experience is very different Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and valid. Yeah. And I cannot remember who said it, but it was, it'll be new whether you make it new or not. (laughs) And I truly believe that. And I tell students and other artists all the time that... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it might appear that it's all been written before, but it's never been written before because not now and not by you, Mm -hmm. which makes it unbelievably important that all of us be sharing our work. Yeah, yeah. And again, I feel like they form bridges, right? Poetry is a form that's common for all human beings. We is something that we can all use to express ourselves. <laughs> the diversity, not even ethnic or racial diversity, just diversity of professional backgrounds for the people who write poetry because this appeals to us and we can speak in a different way to people that even if they don't get the deep meaning behind a poem, they still can carry the words with them. They can still carry the art form with them. I tell my students all the time that poetry is not a puzzle to figure out. Mm -hmm. Poetry is about micro-worlding, is what I like to call it. Mm -hmm. That in micro-worlding, we are creating an experience for someone to literally fall into. And whether they fully understand that experience isn't necessary. Mm-hmm. It's the way that it makes them feel. It's yeah. the way that they connect to it, whether it be language or sound or expression. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the art is there. And once that art is out there, it, it, it's not necessarily ours anymore. Like mm-hmm. ours is the author. Yeah. It's required then to have a life of its own. Yeah, It's mm-hmm. required to be allowed to impact people how it will impact people without any caveats put on it. Yeah, yeah. Also, it's impossible. We can't be following our words right now, you know, especially with self-publishing and Amazon. All of these available vehicles of yeah. carriage these days is not like mm. we just can't. Vehicles of carriage, that's really, yeah. That's an important thought process, I think. Yeah, yeah. It kind of made me think back to what you said about your mom. I guess she was the pre-self-publishing days. Mm, yeah. Which is a shame because it sounds like... Her work touched a lot of people. You know, it did. It did growing up, and it did for us as kids. And, like, at least one iteration of the book, I think it was The Bear That Changes Colors. I just went to Shutterfly and then created books for my nieces and nephews to Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. so they could see what Grandma had written. 
But I remember the difficulty in seeing my mom having all of these writer's digests, having all of these books of how to publish. She was serious about Mm -hmm. the work and the art that she was doing and Mm -hmm. was met with nothing but you have to have an agent. And if you had to have an agent in like the late 70s, early 80s, I mean, imagine what it's like now. Mm -hmm. My mom couldn't afford to have an agent. We could barely afford to have food Mm -hmm. uh, in the refrigerator, Mm -hmm. let alone have my mom have an agent. Which makes what she did on her own so extraordinary. Right. Right. I mean, I imagine her job is, is not just a 40-hour thing, you know? Right. Again, it's all of these hurdles that are being put up mm-hmm. again and again, and that's what makes me grateful for the option of self-publishing. And I wish people all over the place would understand why that is important. For me, having the option of self-publishing for people is an option to believe in one's work Mm -hmm. and believe that where it's at is finished. Mm -hmm. And we go through these cycles that, I mean, publishing is like an extra job, right, to Mm -hmm. try to publish. I mean, you have the art that you you must do, Mm -hmm. or depending upon the artist, whatever the relationship is to the art. But for me, I write because I have to. Mm -hmm. It's part of who I am. But then also there is this desire to publish as well, and that comes on and feels like another job, on top of trying to have my art be the art that it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And, and it's exhausting. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't know how a single parent who has children and works a 40-hour week plus job and is an artist and is also trying to publish. I mean, I don't, I don't know how we do it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But we stretch our humanity for the things that we believe in and desire, right? Yeah, and that we feel like we have to do. It's part of what almost is what can keep us sane. Yeah. Yeah. I chose my poem partly because of what you wrote. It's sort of like amalgamation. Like when I was thinking of the two poems that you gave me mm-hmm. to think about what to give you. But I also talk about the body. Yeah, I noticed and, that. And um, this particular one. Yep. Yeah. And the story the body holds. Yeah. Th- that resonates quite well in your work. Yeah. Did you want to read your piece too? Yeah. So it's called Still, a spot between the shoulder blades, a center of burden not to be mistaken, weight carried by other parts of the body, each loaded with their own story, and the want so fiery that the smell of char flesh is ever present, wafting as a reminder that this corporeal embodiment of energetic emotions thrives despite all the breakage. Its shine flashes through the soot, unabashedly announcing its presence. And so you had asked me a little bit about the history of Love Bold. Where were you in the artistic process when this came about? So I wrote this when I was not feeling very well. And there actually was a spot between my shoulder blades where I was having this itch thing. I was just like, what's going on here? And for some reason, that just became a poem. And usually whenever I write, it's because some line comes to my head. I'm like, ooh, that's a line. That could be a poetry line, you know, be (laughs) verse. So then I just start from there and see what happens. And... Do you jot in a journal first, or do you find yourself at the page, like on the computer, and like and ready to go? 
I write on my phone now these days. Wow, pretty wow much. that's impressive. Yeah, I hate, I kind of hate writing out words mm -hmm. using a pen because my writing is slow yeah. in comparison to typing. And sometimes I would actually just use the speech-to-text function. Yeah. And it really frustrates me when my phone misinterprets what I'm saying. <laughs> I have such sausage fingers that, that texting <laughs> and, and doing any, like I, I don't do work on my phone because it takes twice as long because what I'm deleting from mm -hmm. my big old fingers touching. <laughs> and so I commend you for being able to write on, on your phone. Which sounds horrid to me. That would be horrible if I had, was forced to write on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find that every poet has, or every writer has mm -hmm. their own whatever works well for them, right? For me, yeah. phones are really convenient because I could just go in, type a note, and that's it. Yeah. Again, this was like I had a spot in between my shoulder blades that I, I had an itch on. <laughs> And it kind of made me think, because I, I think at this point, I also wasn't feeling well. I was sick for a while. Right. And I also realized that I tend to carry my stress on my shoulders. Mm. Still has a lot of metaphoric capabilities on mm. a societal level. Mm -hmm. Not having known what the story of the process of creating this piece of art was, I was hearing some echoes to, like in Love Bowl, if you could see the page, other is largely in italics. Mm -hmm. And it's because this idea of otherness is usually something that we become aware of because someone else has deemed us other. Yeah. Or otherness has come to us in a way where we realize, like, which one of these is not like the other right. kind of thing. And that happened for me at a very young age in childhood mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of realizing, like, oh, no other little girls had mustaches. Um, <laughs> no, no other little girls, you know, were like me mm -hmm. because of being Mexican-American. Mm -hmm. And this leads to, at least in Love Bold, this time period where there was not just language violence toward me, but there was also physical violence toward mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And then where other lives inside of us, like mm -hmm. how we internalize that. If you think about beauty, you know, you think about what is beauty on a societal level, you turn to what? Magazines? The, yeah. the biggest lie yeah. ever. Again, who gets to decide? And, and that brings in everything from body concept of weight. It mm -hmm. brings in size, size shape, shape color. height. <laughs> yeah, all of those things. And just this idea that one could be beautiful and other. Mm -hmm. And that's where the loving comes in for me is that mm -hmm. dealing and understanding with one's otherness. And it became something that I loved. Mm -hmm. deeply about me yeah that I am other and what that means is I am not like but I am exactly like in in some ways in the internal mm -hmm. you know like yeah when, when we head to the internal yeah and this keeping this this what walls inhibit and think of the flesh as a wall right mm -hmm. the flesh is more wall than any wall we really know right because it, it's also permeable as hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right like everything yeah. can come into us in a way yeah and so just reconciling one's existence of otherness and finding beauty in it and being brave to be able to step into a world that hates you without knowing you mm -hmm. this is something I think a lot of individuals in this country deal with yeah, and I really loved how you took on it and you just said, so what? 
I'm still going to love. I'm still going to. We, we must. We, yeah. we must do action through love. If yeah. we do action through hate or through indifference, it's not going to help. Yeah. Because real change and real mending on a, on a societal level has to come through love. And in order to do that, we have to love a little the people who hate us. Mm-hmm. And that is the hardest thing to ever do in one's existence. It really is. And and I'm not saying I do this well. And I'm not saying I do this. I, no. I'm, I'm just saying. I think we all trip up. But at least we try, right? But. The trying is the bit. Because it is very difficult, especially when you're in hate of somebody. The other side of in love is in hate with somebody. Well, I, I'd, actually, no, I'd actually argue that the opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. Oh. Because when you don't care about something. It's so much worse than having an emotion toward it, which is hate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, which is, I mean, hate's a really full emotion, right? Just like right, love right, is a really right. full emotion. And indifference is a lack of emotion. Mm. And think of all the things that happen in indifference. Yeah, and that's why I was saying that it's the other side of love. It's sort of two sides of the same coin. Mm. They are very intense emotional yes, yes, feelings. Yes, Whereas... Indifference, as you said, it's 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 something totally different. You know, yeah. I feel like it's it's just it's almost a neglect to the point of death. Yeah, whatever it is that we don't feel anything toward doesn't exist. Exactly, and so much is about us as people of color, as LGBTQI individuals, as individuals identifying with a disability. It is about being seen. It is about the necessity that we are seen both in our physicality and in our voices and in our cognitions and in our consciousness. Yeah. We are here. Yeah. And it kind of brings me back to what you were saying before when you were talking about not being appreciated because of our otherness. And then on the other side of the coin is being valued only for your otherness. Mm. Not necessarily your individuality, but your otherness. Yeah. And I find that a lot as an Asian American, as an Asian woman especially. Yeah. And it's really troublesome because I realize when people come on to me because they have a taste for Asian flesh, they don't care about me. Right. That's a whole nother topic of the exoticized. Yeah. And you find that the same in the Latinx or people mm-hmm. looking towards Latinx community is the stereotype that they are in love with. Well, and also just this the question, I mean, I can't count how many, well, I, I don't want to count how many times I've been asked, what are you? I was actually so disappointed that one of those genetic evaluations, like you can get the 23andMe or something like that, one of those commercials, a woman of color was saying, oh, I kept getting asked, what am I? And so I thought I'd go find out what I am. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That, are you kidding me? Like... <laughs> I don't think someone, they really cared about your genetics. Tur- right, someone turns <laughs> that into like a cute positive spin on <laughs> how to find out what your genetics are. I was like, oh my God. Because the what are you is one of the most demoralizing questions that are yeah. out there. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to bother to learn who you are by spending time with you. I just want you to tell me in the simplest possible ways that fits my perception of who you are. And if you don't, I'm going to keep asking you until I get to that answer. It's about not being seen. It's yeah. about not even believing 
in your physical humanity that's in front of someone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the not being seen is a, is a huge, huge issue. Mm-hmm. I, it is where I think the epitomes of the horrors that we do to each other mm-hmm. and specifically of you know our country's relationship and history of racism is rooted in not being seen and it's rooted in, again, this fragility of power of the dominant narrative refuses to give an inch. Yeah, because if you see, then there is a possibility of guilty conscience. There's a possibility of caring. Like you said, that not caring about people. Yeah, it's imp- not- it's implication in, in many ways of yeah. being implicated yeah. to each other. But that is where we have to be. Mm-hmm. We are tethered to each other. We are. As, I- as much as we want to believe that we're not. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of that poem, No Man is an Island. Talk about cannons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it is true. It is yeah. true. Yeah. It's quite true and it's very important. No person lives, lives, period, in a silo where we are not in some way, shape, or form impacting each other, whether we are willing to admit it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are certain people who, one of the reasons for amassing the fortunes that they have that in such excess that they can't possibly spend it in their own lifetimes or triple their own lifetimes is that a wanting to be entirely independent of the rest of the world. Whereas where does that wealth come from? It's amassed through others, ironically. And what's the point of having wealth if you can't spend it where others are making the products or the services that you want, right? No matter what, it still involves others. Once independence is built upon the service and the products of production of many others. The socioeconomic implications of not seeing have always been catastrophic in the, in the human existence. Yeah, it's, it's short-sighted. And I feel like whether or not a person is wealthy, if she or he are the inheritors of wealth rather than the makers of wealth. There's a huge difference in how they view the world as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the way in which we experience the world is the way that we perpetuate the world forward in mm-hmm. many ways. Mm-hmm. And that's impacted, yeah, for certain, by socioeconomic class, by access, by the privilege of to not have to think about the color of one's skin or one's ability or one's identity, or sexual orientation. There are so many things that, in many ways, the dominant narrative has not had to think about these things. And the voices and experience coming through poetry right now, or at least the voices and experiences that are important to me, are pushing this constantly. Mm. Of These are experiences that we have every single day, Mm. every moment of our existence, And it's important to understand, I think other people understand that our experiences echo each other, but they are not the same. Mm -hmm. Also finding what's relatable, right? In order to find what's relatable, we have to be able to communicate with each other. And it's not always possible to communicate one-on-one with each other, which is what makes these modes of self-expression, poetry, literature, necessary. Again, if there are certain voices or only the dominant voices come through, that means they are monopolizing relatability. Well, they're making the decision of what others are reading. You know, all of us as other people are reading. Yeah, Um, so they're putting their story out there for all of us to relate to. That sort of dominates 
what we consume and what we aspire to, what we should emphasize with as well. Coming back to our own poems, I feel like the relatability between the two our two poems is that despite all the pain that's in both poems, the alienation aspect, the breakage, physical or mental breakage, and that we both are saying, I'm still going to love, and then I'm still going to shine through who I am. So if even if nobody else reads what we're writing here this podcast, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. We still are able to say what we have to say, because first of all, we need to say those things. Right. The necessity of the art and the necessity of the expression itself, and the necessity of the process of making this art for me. Yeah. This isn't something that I sit down and decide when I'm going to write. And so I think it's interesting for you to talk about relatability, because I do think that the question comes about audience when we when we talk about poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, d- does poetry even consider an audience? Well, it depends in many ways. If you see art as activism, and I do, I see art and poetry as activism, which means that on a level, I am considering audience mm-hmm. because I'm wanting this piece to live beyond me as, an, as the writer, mm-hmm. as the artist. Yeah that I, I'm, I'm wanting it to have a larger consideration. But the audience is not dictating the, like, the relatability is only one that a reader can give to the art itself, mm-hmm. right? right? It's kind of like, in my opinion, of leadership. I can't call myself a leader because that is what other people would decide if I ever am. Right. And just as I would get to choose and give power of leadership to others to say, yes, you are a leader in this moment. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly doing that. Like nobody's just a leader all the time either. Like we shift power in order to work well together in community and in communion with the things that we are trying to achieve. And I feel that relatability is this interesting concept that you bring up that it too is something that you can attribute to my poem, but I can't speak to its own relatability because the art is past me now. Right. It's past me as the as the author. It's in the world. Right. It's its own thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so now, I mean, maybe I could look at it as a reader-art relationship again, but that relatability when it comes in, I mean, do you think of audience when you write poems? No. I think when I try to publish it, then I think audience. Interesting. Right. When I try to put a collection together, when I'm performing, then I have to think of messaging. Yeah. And, and that performance aspect is important because I think that that's also, we are artists and this is our art and there's a performative aspect to it. It's not like we're going up and reading our journals. Mm-hmm. This is a professional performative perspective or act that in which we are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me. This is your fourth manuscript, and you're working on a fifth one. Well, no, actually, I'm working on my seventh. Um, oh, wow. So my fifth manuscript was just accepted from a publisher out of Minnesota called uh, Tinderbox Editions. Okay. Yeah. And it's weird because my first manuscript ever published was my fourth one written. Okay. My second was my third. My third was my fifth. <laughs> and then my fifth, or, yeah, my fourth it was my fifth, mm-hmm. and my fifth was my sixth. Okay. No, my fifth was my second. Okay. Sorry. And so, and so one of the best advices that someone had ever given me was don't wait. Yeah. Just create the art you need to create. Right. right exactly. And it is, it is fascinating how some, that for, in the first manuscript I've ever written has not been published and I'm not even circulating it anymore. Right, right. 
It might get at some point. You know, and who knows? And it's not not a necessity for me. I'm so far from it that it's hard for me to believe in it as much as I believed in all the others. Right, right. right. So my question was, what are your manuscript you're working on? Do you pull in from what you have in order to have a coherent manuscript? Or do you write specifically for whatever theme the manuscript Oh, that's a great question. As of right now, I can't say what this next manuscript will be like because hopefully this one will be finished relatively soon. I'm hoping by the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. I do not set and put a container for my art to fit in okay. because I do believe that our obsessions emerge whether we want them to or not. Yes. And so I, I want to be open to the artistic process at all times. It's, it goes back to that cleverness. If I try to be too clever, mm-hmm. I, I kill my art. <laughs> right. And so what I tend to do is write, but I tend to write in bursts where usually a manuscript for me can go about a year to a year and a half, mm-hmm. and then I have to finish it. And it's because I cannot stay in the same mindsets over and over and over again because I'm beginning to see the patterns. Right, right. And that does begin to influence things. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of research that I do. I research each individual poem because it becomes a research project as opposed to researching an overarching theme. Mm-hmm. It's not to say I won't do that in the future. Right. It's just I'm adhering to my own awareness of my process at this point in time. Okay. So it sounds like you don't necessarily put a limit on what subjects you can write on, even mm-hmm. if you're concentrating on a particular manuscript. Right. But no matter what, just... It surfaces know. anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, the reality is it surfaces anyway. Yeah, and yeah. The fact that the move has happened and that I'm now living in Arizona, and like I said, now I'm this close to the Mexico border, knowing that I am a Mexican-American, and what right. does that mean? Right. Being in, in a space that has such beauty, but yet violence, you know, mm-hmm. violent language toward toward individuals who are Mexican descent and migrants and immigrants, it's just, it's coming through. It's nothing I can stop. Right, right. And so what I typically will do is I will write, and I will write, and I will write, and eventually when it feels like I have kind of a certain, I don't know, certain amount of pages, certain amount of feeling like I feel done, mm-hmm. I will step back and then look at what's there, and I will finally put the patterns together. Right. And so far it's worked for me because that's I'm adhering to something that's kind of out of my hands at times. Right. That artistic voice that comes in that helps guide us. Mm-hmm. That doesn't always feel like it's ours. <laughs> yeah, you know, it feels like channeling. It, yes, yep, channeling. That's that's a great way to put it. It's not fully ours. And there's so many times where I write and I step away and I look back at what I wrote and I I don't necessarily remember it. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And I feel that I'm doing good when I'm doing that. Mm. There will be some revision that comes in, but I also tend to have no loyalty to anything I put on the page. Mm. While I'm writing and I'm writing in that furious process, Mm -hmm. I will cut and strip and delete as I go along. Mm -hmm. And that's important to me, too, Mm -hmm. Um, because I think we become too attached to words and to phrases we put down. And then all of a sudden... We can't move a piece of art forward because of our attachment to it. Yeah, it's hard. Sometimes I just leave it alone for a while so I can lose the attachment first before I go back at it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just like, no, such a cute kitten. Wow, killing, <laughs> killing our darlings, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hard. It is hard. To be a good artist, you kind of have to love or like your work enough. 
to want to keep doing it. You also have to believe in yourself enough to deconstruct. Yeah. yeah. Of all things that I tell students or other artists that I work with, it is this belief in the self and the belief that you know what your art needs mm-hmm. is the most important because if you're unwilling to deconstruct your own work or to chop it away or to add or to put the energy in that the art needs, if you're unwilling to do that, it's stemming from a belief that you either A, know how, or B, that this is going to be the last great thing you write, mm-hmm. which is never true, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, you write something and if you like it, great. If you love it, great. But you don't have to have either to believe in it. You can believe in your art and not exactly know where it is because that's why you send it into the world so others can help. Yeah, 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 definitely. I've done that. I've sent out things. I'm like, I don't know what the heck it is. Oh, yeah. Listen to it. (laughs) I say all the time, if you're going to submit, you're submitting five poems somewhere, put three you love, two you don't like. Mm. And it's amazing how much those two you don't like get picked up first. Because it's a subjective art, right? Right, right, right. It is. You don't know what would resonate with someone else. Mm -hmm. You don't know where you're going to find someone who reads your art and thinks to themselves, wow, this is an expression that's necessary. Mm -hmm. Well, before I let you go, please tell us where we can go see you read. I saw you at a reading. You sound (laughs) like you have a full plate, but do you still go and because I'm so new to Arizona I've only read in the state of Arizona three times once at the Poetry yeah. Center yeah. in Tucson once with Bojan Lewis at Mesa Community College mm-hmm. and then at the reading that Rosemary Dombrowski had yeah had. poetry series the poetry right? series yeah so those are the only three times mm-hmm. so you don't go to open mics then no, I, I typically don't go to open mics, yeah. I don't know why. I just don't, I guess. Come, come out. The performance aspect of being a poet is necessary. While I'm writing, everything gets read aloud over mm-hmm. and over and yeah. over again. Yeah. Because if it doesn't sound right aloud, it it's not right on the page. Like, mm-hmm. period for me. Mm-hmm. Even though I am not a performance poet, I don't see myself as being a performance poet. I just see myself as a poet who then performs my work. Wait, that means you have an audience in mind then. Not necessarily a specific audience, but audience in mind when you write because you think about how it's being perceived. You know what? Sometimes I think I'm the audience. Mm. Um, And you'll find with a lot of my work, there's a you. Uh, The Mm. second person is dominant in a lot of my poetry. And Mm. I think it's because the you is me. When Mm -hmm. I read the you aloud, Mm -hmm. it does two things. It implicates the reader at all times to say you. And Mm -hmm. once we say you in the head... We think us. We think mm-hmm. me. And so that writer-art relationship, as well as I am a reader and writer simultaneously. I am my own audience. Uh-huh. And I, like most of us, I think I'm probably my biggest critic, right? Uh-huh. But that's important. Yeah, it is important. Um, you say you have one social media link I, you like to share. I do. Oh, it's Felicia Zamora Poet on Instagram. It is the one social media outlet that I have. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks, Imogen. This was a great conversation, and I ap- appreciate you sharing your art with me and also your, your thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com or via social media on Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A. Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week. 
and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.